ultimately filmmaking is a totally collaborative effort. So it's like things are changing throughout the process of filming and there's dialogue in there that, you know, we ad-libbed and improvised day of that, you know, made the final picture. So I think it's important to not be hyper-sacred to what's on the written page and know that it's a dynamic that can change. Brian Smith here, and welcome to the Dream Path Podcast, where I try to get inside the heads of talented creatives from all over the world. My goal is to demystify and humanize the creative process and make it accessible to everyone. Now let's jump in. McKelly Chavetta is on the show. McKelly is a writer, producer, and Emmy-nominated director. He has directed projects for commercial clients like Martini and Rossi, Dunkin' Donuts, Bacardi, and Coca-Cola as well as music videos for Lou Reed, Sparkle Horse, and Yoko Ono, among many others. In 2006, McKelly wrote, produced, and directed a musical feature for Sean Lennon's Capitol Records release, Friendly Fire, starring Lindsay Lohan, Carrie Fisher, Jordana Brewster, and Devin Aoki. In 2009, McKelly produced and directed a short for an omnibus series of 42 films based on dreams. The project premiered at the Cannes Film Festival and included work by David Lynch, Harmony Corinne, and Taika Waititi, among others. In 2019, McKelly produced and directed a feature film called Agony, starring Asia Argento. His most recent film is The Gateway, starring Shea Wiggum, Bruce Dern, Olivia Munn, Frank Grillo, Mark Boone Jr., and Taryn Manning. The Gateway is a gritty noir crime thriller about a social worker, played by Shea Wiggum, who gets in over his head when he tries to save one of his clients from her maniacal, drug-dealing husband, who was just released from prison. The film was released last week on September 3rd, and is now available for rent or purchase wherever you stream your movies. In this interview, McKelly talks about his path into the arts, which started with photography at age 14, shooting music videos, doing commercial work, and then directing feature films. He gives advice to aspiring filmmakers, talks about the process of rewriting the script for The Gateway, and shares how he approached casting the film. Due to time constraints, this interview is a bit shorter than most, but we ended up covering a wide range of subjects anyway. So buckle up and let's jump right into my chat with Michele Civetta. Michele Civetta, welcome to Dream Path Podcast. Hey, pleasure to be uh, with you today, like all the guitars behind you. Oh, thank you. This backdrop for me is just a way to kind of break the ice sometimes with creatives. It, it seems to <laughs> be a conversation starter. But uh, boy, what a film. Uh, I just watched this movie of yours, The Gateway, and we're here to talk about it and your career. So thanks for making time for us. Maybe you could start by sharing, I guess, your elevator description of this movie. Uh, so The Gateway is basically a inner city crime thriller. I like to think of it as a bit of a neo-noir. And it basically follows a social worker uh, played by Shea Wiggum who gets enmeshed in a family that he's trying to protect who had a husband who was an ex-convict who's uh, released from prison early. Uh, and it basically sets off a whole travail into drug smuggling and uh, drug heist and basically puts all the uh, characters' lives in jeopardy as everybody kind of intertwines. Um, along the way, basically, all the, all the characters have to come to grips with their own troubled past. And um, ultimately, I think it's a story of redemption that, you know, kind of uh, people find the, their core humanity along the way as they, they discover. Wow, that's a great synopsis. <laughs> so based upon my research, it looks like this screenplay has been around for a while. It was blacklisted. Yeah. 
or it was on the blacklist, I should say, not blacklisted. It was on the blacklist in 2013, I believe. That, that, that's correct. I was uh, not aware of uh, the scripting on the blacklist until recently, actually. But my producer, uh, Andrew Levitas, had, had basically discovered the script, I guess, optioned it a bunch of years back. And he'd asked me, you know, look, if you can take a crack at the script and we can develop it to a place that it's a little bit more nuanced and has, you know, kind of greater uh, character arcs, a little bit more development and uh, will be, you know, in, in shape to actually go make this thing as a picture. So, you know, from, from the original script, it had an amazing, all the building blocks and architecture of a really solid uh, genre piece. And, you know, what I like to believe we did along the way was basically infuse a few more human elements and, and create a bunch of different characters. So it became a little bit more sociopolitical in terms of what was being said, mm-hmm. in terms of uh, both the arc of characters as, as well as just about the world in general at this point. Was Shea Wiggum's character, Parker, a social worker when you got the script originally, or did that evolve? Oh, absolutely. He was a social worker. And, you know, I think to uh, tip my hat to the original script, I, I thought it was such a unique way to, to kind of investigate and kind of get dug into your kind of typical cops and robbers kind of uh, story, you know, in a sense, like it's not a vantage point that we're, we're really used to seeing our, our hero hero kind of like uh, coming from in terms of how they travail kind of the rough and tumble world that that the story occupies. Yeah, I found it fascinating to see this crime world through the lens of a social worker's eyes, because with like the typical trope of the protagonist in a movie like this is the cop or, you know, the ex-cop or, you know, maybe ex-military or something like that. But here, you know, there's a softer side to him. There's a damaged side, obviously, working through some trauma. So he's not this guy that you know is going to come in guns a-blazing and be able to just manhandle his way through the situation. He's got to use a different skill set. Yeah, no, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, it, it has all the conventions of what we're used to, but like, you know, even rewriting the script, it became so important to justify why can this guy actually be a little bit more aggressive as a uh, social worker. And so, you know, I wrote in the whole backstory of him as a like failed boxer and, and just how all that stuff played out that, you know, you got the sense that this was a tough guy, especially when he comes up against some <laughs> legitimate looking tough guys, you know? Right. And talking about the legitimacy of these tough guy characters, you really brought in some great actors to fill these roles. Frank Grillo. Thank you. Shea Wiggum and Frank Grillo, both for me, visually, almost, and this this is not meant to be disparaging in any way, but they almost, they're so distinctive, they look like comic book characters sometimes. <laughs> like, yeah, just their facial expressions and- Chiseled, like iconic looking kind of guys, without a doubt. Exactly. Iconic is a great word for both of them. How did the casting come about for Grillo and Wiggum and the rest of them? Because it was very well cast, in my opinion. Oh, thank you. I, uh, you know, we started to send the script around and it's always a chicken versus the egg kind of proposition in terms of getting these things off the ground. But we were real fortunate because we sent it to Shay and he, he responded pretty early on. And he and I kind of developed a lot of components of the character kind of while we were casting. And, uh, you know, ultimately Shay, as I've been saying, is like the ultimate insider actor's actor. So I think, you know, when somebody sees he's involved with something, they know it's going to be a heartfelt piece, but it's going to be about, you know, visceral, raw, real acting. And so, you know, it, it really made everything a lot easier in terms of that as an anchor, in terms of the cosmology of what the story was going to be. But from there, we had Olivia Munn got uh, involved. And, you know, 
part of my my goal, I guess, in trying to orchestrate you know a, a comprehensive world was just really be very disparaging about making sure every single character really lived up to you know what their screen time could be. So we got super lucky with Frank Grillo coming out to play ball and Mark Boone Jr. and Taron Manning. So I, I found even down to the wire with some of you know ostensibly the smaller characters in it, it we just had a lot of luck because you know i feel like it becomes cross communicative with actors that they say wow if that person's doing that like this would be a good opportunity to go out and explore and, and play together exactly and i like the visual that all of these actors and actresses bring to the movie taron manning and boone jr from sons of anarchy yeah they're on the screen and you're like wow just their image kind of creates a tone in the film that's interesting yeah and you know i think you know certainly when you're dealing with an actor like uh, who has such an amazing legacy like bruce stern i think you know you're bringing up a super interesting point because i was kind of hyper aware of just the, the history of who these actors are on screen and you have to take that in, into some consideration in telling a story especially in noir because we all walk in with our preconceived ideas of who they are or what we're used to seeing them playing. And obviously actors are, are meant to be chameleons in terms of they should be able to shift faces and personas and guises. But, you know, it made it easier, I guess, in the casting, because like with someone like Dern, he spent so much time in the 70s kind of addressing social issues about the Vietnam era, you know, everything uh, that was at root and at stake in the country politically at that point. And, and that, you know, certainly became a huge bedrock for what his character is here in, in this film specifically. Yeah. Bruce Stern was an interesting choice. My frame of reference for him is Big Love and the creepy dad or the creepy, you know, grandpa. Yeah. <laughs> and so I was expecting a little more villainous character in Bruce Stern, mm -hmm. but he turned out to be, well, I don't want to give anything away, but it was fun to see him on screen and the role that he played and what he contributed to the story. So I saw three screenwriters and then story by for one of them on this project. Yeah. How involved were you in the actual finalizing of this screenplay before it was shot? I mean, you know, like we were saying earlier on, um, Alex, who is the original screenwriter and has the story by credit, you know, basically delivered up the blueprint for the story. You know, to be honest, in order to relate to it and understand it, kind of the window in terms of what I was looking to try and say in this, you know, I ended up basically rewriting about, I'd say, a good half of the script in terms of like Frank Grillo's character didn't exist in the original. Uh, and there was just a lot of nuances about backstory, dialogue stuff that, you know, just kind of at least allowed me to see how it fused, you know? Mm -hmm. So, you know, by, by the end of it, I, I think it's a super fortunate uh, version of, of synchronicity and, and harmony because I think Alex is, is quite pleased with the finished result and, you know, ultimately filmmaking is a totally collaborative effort. So it's like, yeah, you know, things are changing throughout the process of filming and that there's dialogue in there that, you know, we ad-libbed and improvised day of that, you know, made the final picture. So, you know, I, I think it's important to not be hyper sacred to what's on the, the written page and know that it, it's a dynamic that can change, you know, as you bring in all these other human components. You know, one of my favorite things about this film is number one, it's a really tight story. So there's really nothing on screen that's unnecessary. Gets right to the point. Mm -hmm. But second, the music was fantastic. Oh, thank you. And specifically, you know, the the, the soundtrack, the songs, I, I don't know how that came together, but for me, it felt almost inspired by Jackie Brown. <laughs> totally. 
is that the name of the movie, the Quentin Tarantino film? Yeah. Jackie Brown? Yeah, Tarantino, he, he's super, uh, you know, infuses everything with a ton of music, you know? Yeah. When Shea Wiggum's character, Parker, gets into the car and turns on the vehicle, and it's this old, you know, classic, I, I forget what kind of vehicle it is, but, you know, it, it just has this 70s vibe to it, even though I think it was set yeah. in the 90s or something, but. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's a mid-90s car that it could be a sleeper for like a, a mid-70s car, you know? Right, yeah, almost like an old Cadillac or something like that. But the music that is accompanied by him yeah, and his iconic face, it was just a, a great choice to pick these songs. And I don't know where they came from. I didn't recognize the songs, but they sounded like they were from a different era. Yeah, well, my um, our, our music supervisor, Alex Brown, I mean, she's just somebody who really... Uh, she's like a musicologist so it's like if you say you're interested in like a 70s track that's like al green she'll she'll basically be able to find five or six songs that got swept under the carpet or were just never as popular along the way so you know we spent a long long time just trying to audition different songs throughout it and a lot of it i was using even when i wrote the scripts you know did all all the rewriting on it because it, it just for whatever reason very important tonally for me to understand you know kind of the mood and, and you know when you're not operating with the visuals at that stage, just, you know, kind of what, what the overall ambiance is going to be like. So mm-hmm. we, uh, we definitely went to town with all that music and not always the easiest balance, you know, kind of uh, working with existing needle drop because it can combat against score. And so, you know, some of it was designed to be set pieces and other ones, you know, we just had to kind of massage our way through it to see how it was, how it was going to play out. You got your start in the arts from what i can tell with quintessence films and shooting music and yeah i watched your video for lou reed's ecstasy uh-huh. and i know you've done a lot of music videos and commercial work but tell us how you found you know the visual arts and film and commercials and, and music videos specifically uh, it's a, a, a real good question brian because you know like like i was saying just now it's like the music is it's very seminal for me in terms of the creative process and you know, I did cut my teeth on shooting a, a bunch of music videos early on. And so, and, you know, I always find that with music videos, you're always creating the visual component, like the libretto that goes with that actual piece. But, you know, in commercial filmmaking, you, you basically have the opportunity to experiment a lot. So it's like, you know, the, the beauty of what that offers it is that fusion of art and commerce that you learn how to work with clients, whether it's an ad agency, whether it's a record label. And specifically the, the musicians themselves when they're, they're creating stuff. And I always felt like you were helping to foster their vision of what, what the music was. And, you know, filmmaking is very similar in the sense when you, when you make a film, you know, you are encountering all these different facets, uh, the integrity that the actors bring or just managing, you know, the production kind of cycle, uh, with producers plus like eventually like the studio, like trying to, to launch a film. So yeah, it becomes just a gigantic learning curve ultimately, you know, that in some ways uh, I, I like to consider it applied field theory, that you can apply those lessons to the next one in filmmaking or making films that is, it, it's so vital that you, you really just tone in all of your attention on the performances because it, it's an actor's medium ultimately, you know, right. That's our window into a story. When in your life were you called to visual arts and film at what age? When I, when I was about, 14. I, uh, I started taking a lot of pictures and uh, it sounds kind of funny. My dad was like a spaghetti Western junkie because he, he's from Italy. And so in that era, like that was kind of the equivalent of the big blockbuster kind of fair. 
And I never really watched what I would consider today art films, you know? And so I like came across Stanley Kubrick's Paths of Glory and then some of the Fellini films. And I was like, well, I kind of imagine the world in these kinds of ways or like, you know, when I dream and, and think creatively, I see things in a certain way. And what was amazing is I just never connected. Oh yeah, there's somebody behind those things. <laughs> there were just things that were on the TV or the screen. And so, you know, it really uh, spurred something that I said, I've got to figure out exactly how you become one storytellers. Yeah. And how did you? I mean, what were your steps to become a visual storyteller? Uh, I mean, certainly taking photos constantly throughout that period. And then I, I basically dug in and started writing a lot, then, whether it was short stories, whether it was concepts for films. And then from there, I spent the last two years of university at film school. I was pretty lucky. I, I applied once, didn't get in. And then I, I was lucky enough to write a commercial for a photographer that was actually on MTV. And that, that was the basis of how I got into school. And from there, it, it kind of seemed apparent, like, you know, you're, you're learning the craft at a, a film school in terms of you understand a bit about screenwriting, cameras, directing, uh, how to build sets and all that kind of stuff. But it was apparent it was not easy to go to work directing or produce stuff out of school. So I basically kind of honed in on, on commercial filmmaking. Mm -hmm. At that time, there was a lot of really inspiring folks making making work. You know, a, lot, a lot of the generation of the great directors today, whether it's a David Fincher, or a Mark Romanek, a Spike Jones, and you know, it, it seemed like it was the window. So I, I kind of really just started doing that. And you know, obviously, here we are, twenty five years later. So it, it takes right. it takes a while to get to all, all these things to align. So you're in commercial filmmaking and making music videos, mm -hmm. and then you make this transition into feature films. How difficult was it in terms of networking, technical savvy, and just opportunities to find your way into uh, feature filmmaking and narrative filmmaking? I mean, it, it's uh, um, a gargantuan Sisyphusian pussy in proposition. So you're, you know, you're always pushing that boulder up the hill and hope it doesn't roll over you again. Right. I had a film I wrote in 2003, it was financed like three or four times over. It was a complicated piece of material called Coin Locker Babies, which is like a Japanese sci-fi basically. Right. And you know, it takes so much to really have everything line up. It's like we, we had a very good cast for that film and it like ultimately fell apart because of the 08 fiscal crisis. Oh yeah. It was just basically banks were no longer willing to like lend against distribution deals and so, you know, in many ways, I've been writing films. I've written probably about four or five that have been picked up along the way for, for like studios and stuff. But in terms of actually getting all the pieces together to, to actually be on the ground shooting, it's, it's been difficult, I got to say. A lot, of, a lot of fate, fortune, and luck, I think, along the way. As you may have noticed, there are great resources and advice mentioned in all our episodes. And for many of them, we actually collect all of these resources for you in one easy place. Our newsletter. You can go to dreampathpod.com slash newsletter to join. It's not fancy, just an email about each week's episode, featured artists, and resources to help you on your journey. Now, back to the interview. This appears to be, I think, your first major feature film, narrative film, where you have this pretty remarkable cast, you've got a great storyline, and it's a really exciting film. Where do you see your career going next, and how important is a film like this to launch you into the next stage of your career? You know, I, I think filmmaking is it, a complex, complex proposition. I like to believe it's cumulative, and you know that um, one 
piece of work will contribute and lead to your next one. And there is a certain degree of it being flavor of the, the month kind of club in terms of, you know, if people are enjoying something you're doing, then you're relevant to, uh, to go forward. I, I've always thought about directing kind of like a, it's a contenders game. Like you, you just have to last enough rounds. And if you can make it to the end, eventually you'll be dignified to stand on your feet and, and great stuff will come along the way. You'll get, you'll get your shots in. I, I'm hoping this will, you know, uh, lead the way for a few things I have kind of in the works. You know, and it's an exciting time in the world, uh, not vis-a-vis the pandemic and all the world suffering, but the way that we're ingesting media these days. There's just a lot more folks really taking risks with unique content, uh, you know, in the streaming landscape, whether it's the Amazon, the uh, Netflixes, the HBO. So I, I think it's a unique moment because you're not confined strictly to the two-hour format anymore. You can kind of have a lot more wiggle room to, you know, create an episodic movie, for example. So there's been some great stuff in these last few years that kind of switched the formula, you know? Yeah. Well, uh, episodic television seems to have become, I don't know, more esteemed these days than, than feature films. Yeah. And it seems like from a creator standpoint, there's so many opportunities that weren't there 10 years ago that are here today in terms of where you can create the platforms that are willing to fund it. From the outside looking in, it seems overwhelming, like the choices that you have and the directions that you can go as a filmmaker and as a creator. Yeah, no, I think that's right. It's overwhelming, but it's also a new Wild West. And I, I think these hierarchies, if you want to call them, they, they do shift every 15 years. You know, so like there was the era of the mini majors that, you know, kind of allowed certain types of auteurs to make films. And, uh, you know, that, that it's kind of the devil in the detail of being a visual artist in, in this medium because you, you do have to have a, a keen understanding or at least an awareness of what's going on in, in terms of the business side of stuff. And, and it's definitely a constant. You have to design with that in mind. Have you found that with the sea of content that we're swimming in now, that it's harder to be seen and heard even when you have a feature film like this with just so many amazing actors and characters and a great storyline that today might be the most challenging time in the history of, of film and television to actually have your work be seen. Welcome to the megalopoly, my friend. I, I think, you know, <laughs> be careful with the, the Tower of Babel we're, we're building at this point. I mean, digital information has changed everything for the better, but with it comes consequences. So I like to believe that if somebody creates something that's, you know, has some sort of profound message or something that's human enough that we connect to it, it, it will be discovered or at least find some notoriety now and it will have posterity moving forward. However, it, it is kind of like a needle in the haystack sort of proposition. It's actually, you know, if you miss it for that one week, it's like a blitzkrieg of information of what's next. Oh, did you watch that new show that's on? And, you know, it's so different to document than the old, old school days where you'd go to that great video store or even that record store for that matter that, you know, you knew more or less what was there. It was ta- tactile and there was a culture of people you know, really actively discussing that, which, you know, happens, but I just think the antenna rod is less and less honed in in one direction these days, you know? Yeah. Now, did I read this correctly that this was shot in Virginia? Yeah, that's correct. We uh, we filmed it in Norfolk, Virginia, which is kind of an aggregate of, of townships. So Virginia Beach is there, Portsmouth, and uh, Hampton Roads. What went into the decision-making process for that location? So, you know, uh, the original story was set to place, take place in Chicago, 
Um, when I switched to St. Louis, you know, it basically became a question of, you know, which states are the most film centrically friendly. So, you know, obviously Atlanta is a huge hub for production these days, as is uh, Raleigh, North Carolina. Um, and our producer actually had filmed uh, two other films in this area. So uh, they, they kind of knew the lay of the land there and just in many ways, just kind of what the community was willing to to offer up in terms of helping us to film down there, which which was vital you know, for someone like this, you know, to close down streets for like gunfights at all hours of the night. And you can do that, except it has a serious price tag certain places. Like shoot this movie in New York would have been prohibitively complicated, for example. Yeah. So there's a lot of logistics that went into it, not necessarily the aesthetics of the town, but, you know, the tax incentives and- Always. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. That's fascinating. But, you know, with that in mind, it's like the, they'd filmed their previous film in this town, the, the producers, and they actually shot two days of Paris in the same area because, you know, like logistically, it can be hard to bring your actors. And so, you know, it's always a bit of compromise, but it's amazing how industrious production designers and, and the artisans can be these days in terms of really making something kind of speak to the attributes of another place, another city. And in this case, we, we researched St. Louis enough, you know, that we knew more or less that there were ubiquitous qualities with, with filming in Virginia. Right. And it looks like you, you've shot this just in the nick of time before the, the pandemic hit. <laughs> Tell me about it. So when did it wrap? Uh, we wrapped in the summer of 19. Okay. So we, we basically did most of the post-production work throughout the fall. And we're kind of at the end of the pipeline of all that, like doing sound mixing and all that stuff, literally when the, uh, the pandemic started like rearing its ugly face all over the world. Yeah. And so you, you're sitting on this film and I mean, was the delay in release related entirely to the pandemic and theaters being closed or? A hundred percent. Well, yeah. it, it, the whole concept of release patterns, supply and demand chain, like no different than the supermarkets was disrupted with this, you know, so films were half finished, films were ready to be screened and the theaters obviously closed. And for this film, just because the way the producers kind of uh, organized the financing and, and the kind of creative imaginations of how they wanted to play it, they always intended to bring it to a festival as a birthplace. So, you know, our, our hope was to bring it to Cannes or Venice or Toronto, but all that stuff was canceled that year. Right. So it was definitely a period of like sitting in a hot seat, just being like, what, what are we going to do with this? And now so much time has passed. It actually feels like it's an amazing dream come true to actually just have everything align at this one moment where it feels like, you know, life is coming back to, to everywhere, you know, to everything we do in this country on a daily basis. Yeah. Looking back on what I was doing when you guys were mixing sound and in post-production, I, I was at Sundance in 2020. And yeah. it's funny, I, I rode in the same elevator with Shay because we were staying in the same building on Main Street. Funny. And so at this time, he had just, looking back on it, he had just shot this film and was probably anticipating it being released that year. And and uh, look where we are now. That's right. I, I think he was there with the, the quarry or something that year. Um, yeah. He'd finished a couple things. And yeah, I mean, talk about someone having cabin fever. I mean, he, he had so many different things lined up because he's, he's just wrapped Mission Impossible, the next two of them, in the last like week or so. Mm -hmm. So, you know, like everybody like had their plans going forward and it, it, it derailed everything. And hopefully it made us wiser and more patient and, you know, just kind of assess really what, what we all want to be doing moving forward. Right. As a creator, are you looking in the near and midterm at projects that are more contained for logistical purposes and 
you know, COVID issues? I'm, it, it's definitely something you have to uh, take into serious consideration. But uh, you know, depending upon the scale and the budget these days, I mean, so much of the safety precautions for the pandemic have been really factored in uh, as line items. So it's like no different than you used to have to pay out a certain percentage for contingency and insurance. Like now, all that those costs are factored in up front. Mm-hmm. I I would like to think it's not going to limit you know the, the types of stories we tell too much, but you know maybe I'll focus on doing stuff outside for a while or something. Yeah, maybe a remake of My Dinner with Andre or something like that, where you're just <laughs> I, totally, I love that film, boy. Yeah, just a small cast ensemble, and I had a friend who did something like that. They were one of the few films that shot the beginning of the pandemic, and that was the only way to do it: just encloise yourself, a few people, cast members, and and just keep it really safe as you're working. Right. So back to the film briefly, Olivia Munn, mm-hmm. when did she get attached to the film relative to Dern and Wiggum and, and Grillo? Uh, Olivia was the second actress who uh, actually got involved. And you know she was so seminal, I, I think, in creating that balance because ultimately we were lucky that they're, they're the two leads of the film. And it, it really it articulated a lot of what the world could look like at that point in terms of the, the rest of the cast. And, and mm-hmm. she, she was just so generous in terms of what she brought into it so early on. I mean, she was constantly giving back to other actors on set and, and just pulling from the right cloth, I think, in, in terms of what she brought to the character. I mean, she, she personalized it to her own experience as a child. And uh, it just felt like there was a, a lot of common ground for you know, where, where her character Dahlia ultimately ends up. Yeah. She, she found the inside to get into that and make it real. Yes. I think there's a lot of um, preconceived notions about actors and actresses that are, I don't know, they're just sort of larger than life in other roles or Mm -hmm. their roles are so different than what she was playing here that maybe you go in a little bit skeptical about whether they can pull it off, whether they were the right fit. Yeah. But she did a great job, very credible performance of someone in, you know, a socioeconomic place that you would not expect someone like Olivia to be playing. Yeah. And maybe that's just my bad as an audience member for, you know, imposing or, or projecting that on her. But yeah, but we, we all do that, you know. Yeah. I, I was very pleasantly surprised with uh, with her performance. Uh not because I, I don't think she's a great actress. I just, for some reason, I pigeonhole people into certain types of roles. But Yeah, I, th- I think, you know, it's something that really is the nature of uh, the image factory, so to speak. So, you know, if you see someone who does enough, you know, Marvel or big budget fair kind of action stuff and, or is more comedically driven, it takes a while to really kind of reassess what they might be. Now, I feel like someone like Steve Carell comes to mind only like you know, like did Little Miss Sunshine, which is offbeat, and I'm, I'm a big, big fan of Foxcatcher, hmm. the Charles Dupont story. And, you know, that, that was kind of the first time he played really serious dramatic. And, you know, I, I think after you see one of those roles, you kind of re-identify with the actor. You say, oh, wow, he can also do this. And so they're no longer pigeonholed as like, you know, the, the, the comic kind of character. Right. That's a great example of Steve Carell. Yeah. No, him and, uh, you know, Jim Carrey. And I think we're at an amazing moment with a lot of these actors that, you know, if given the opportunities and they're brave enough to to do it, I think they can go to places that are not always easy or comfortable. You know, and I think in Olivia's case, you know, definitely there was a certain uh, pre-expectation in terms of the kind of work she's she's done before. But I, I think she's so brilliant and most dramatically. I think you really, you, you see someone who's palpable and real on screen. Yeah. We have a few minutes left, and I want to make sure I get in this last question. Yeah, please. Let's do. So I've talked to a lot of artists 
recently about advice that they have for young people that want to get into their creative space, and in your case, um, film. And it seems that that advice has evolved over time. Interesting. Because of where we, you know, where we are in terms of being able to produce your own content. Yeah. So you have people on TikTok and YouTube that are producing with their phones high quality content that's getting a lot of eyeballs, a lot of views. Yep. And then you have the traditional route of, well, you move to LA and then you become an intern and then a production assistant and then a writer's assistant. Work your way through the cycle. Yeah. Yeah. So what what advice do you have for young people or even not young people, but just people that want to get into this creative space to start becoming a visual storyteller like you? you you lay that out so beautifully, Brian, because I, I I think what's changed, you know, at least in terms of filmmaking since since I started doing this, it was like you needed to have access to the equipment. You know, you needed to be able to go onto a scene back and, and invent the digital editing and you needed to have access to these cameras that cost a, a ton of money and to the point that I know when Werner Herzog filmed, I think it was a gear or one of his earlier movies, he, he actually stole a camera and he's like, I preordained this because God wants me to have this and I'm going to be a filmmaker. Like that, it's like, I'm going to take these tools and be able to do it. Right now, like, I don't think anyone has an excuse because you can shoot amazingly uh, high quality images, you know, on your phones. And so the tools are there to experiment and to, to really create creating. It's about just putting yourself out there and constantly exploring and doing more. And um, in many ways, just being aware of, of what's out there in the world also. So if you, you want to be a filmmaker, go to as many museums as you can, read as many books as you can, listen to as much music as you can, and, and live your life. And try and transcribe that into uh, the storytelling, you know, because it's a hierarchy out here in terms of what works if you want to go more traditional routes, but you know, you'll probably end up with more traditional results if you go that way as well. Mm-hmm. So I, I think it's, it's really important just to, to, you know, not to sound cliche, like live a bit of an unexamined life in terms of what your life will come first and then the art or work comes with that. You know? Yeah. So get out there, live your life, do as many things as you can to provide experiences to inform your art. Yes, sir. Create. But what about film school? How important was film school for you and how important is it today? That, that's, it's something I, I've looked back at a bunch over the years. And for me, the great takeaway beyond you know, learning the technical basics of how you create stories from, from, with equipment, the editing process, all the, all the stuff that's a little bit easier to actually understand and you know, beyond like an amateurist hobby perspective these days. You need a core group of individuals there. And this is the other thing I did want to touch on is like your community as a storyteller or an artist becomes so vital because you not only reinforce each other, you push each other. And it's always amazing to me when I look back now, going on almost 25 years since since I finished up school, uh, just how many incredible things these other friends have done over the years, you know, whether they're cinematographers, whether they became production designers or writers. And it wasn't always apparent at the beginning, you know, because we were all kind of walking our path and maybe one person gets there a lot quicker within five years or 10 years. But that interfacing and keep finding your tribe, you know, the people that you really exchange information with, that that is vital to this. And I, I think that applies, you know, in every aspect of it even in the corporate stuff, you know, having to find money and figuring that all, like you, you exchange information along the way and then you help each other. Yeah. I like that. Find your tribe. Yeah. <laughs> uh, very well said. Michele Giveta, thank you so much for sharing your story with us. Really looking forward to seeing the response to this wonderful film. 
the gateway. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Brian. It was wonderful talking together. And uh, I'm wishing you a great rest of the summer. All right. You too. Hey, thank you for listening. And I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If so, I have a favor to ask. Can you go to wherever you listen to podcasts and leave me a review? Your feedback is what keeps this podcast going. You can also check us out on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook with the handle at DreamPathPod. And as always, go find your dream path. Thank you.